Support for this podcast is provided by Cressa. Cressa is the occupier's champion, the world's premier corporate real estate advisory firm, exclusively serving startup businesses and major global organizations alike. As a Portland pillar for over 25 years, Cressa partners with its clients throughout the entire project lifecycle, from workplace strategy and discovery through the deal transaction and project management delivery of space. Cressa partners without conflict and applies integrated expertise to make your business better. Go to cressa.com Portland to connect with the Portland advisory team. From that cast creative, I'm Dan Bruton, and this is the PDX Executive Podcast. A show where I talk with inspiring leaders who are shaping the future of Portland, Oregon. Every week, I sit down with business executives, startup founders, and community leaders to dive into their career journey and get insights into the impactful work they're doing in our slice of the great Pacific Northwest. Hey everyone, welcome back to the PDX Executive Podcast. We're back, believe it or not. I think this is the fifth season. Uh, I started this podcast, oh boy, 2017. And I couldn't think of a better person to help kick off the season than someone who I had on, I think, five or six times. Mike Rogaway, who's a business reporter for The Oregonian. Mike, good to see you. Thanks for, for coming back. It is great to see you. Thanks for having me back. You bet. We got a lot to talk about. Yeah, it's been, I mean, it's been an eventful stretch. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let's start there. I think the best thing is IPOs. In, the, in my absence, and since we've talked last, there's been a lot going on. So we can maybe touch base on each one and one that's near and dear to my heart because I grew up in Grants Pass. I grew up with the, the Borsma family that started it. I worked at Dutch Brothers, one of my first jobs. Dutch Brothers, unbelievable IPO. I tried to get some stock and it just popped too high. So I'm like, I'm going to wait. So, you know, what's going on? I mean, it just well, went really let, well. Let, let me, that, that's, I had no idea you were from Grants Pass. You know, Andrew Thien's from our, my yeah. our colleague at the Oregonian, Andrew Thien's from down around that um, area. I had, I had no idea. People, so now first, first I have to point something out to you. It's not Dutch Brothers. It's Dutch Bros. Well, that's that's right. the company yeah, yeah. pronounces its name, yes. at least yeah. now. I'm not sure yep. if it was always that way, but it's Dutch Bros. Um, and, you know, it has been uh, my colleague, Ted Sickinger, and I back in 2006, we wrote a story. Where is Oregon's next billion dollar company? And we hadn't had an IPO of any size at all. There had been some companies that had gone public, you know, through you know, little offerings and things. Um, but since 2004. Um, up until Dutch Bros. And they held, not an Oregon company, no Oregon company had, some had in Vancouver, but um, Dutch Bros IPO was a smashing success mm-hmm. um, by any any measure. Um, you know, it, it, the idea was it would trade around 22 or $23 a share. It immediately shot up to to 46. Let me look and see what their market yeah, cap what is, is, what is right it now. It's it's really something. Um, I got to look over here, um, but it's it's in the several billion dollars now. Yeah, and um, yeah, one more step. Maybe you can edit this out. <laughs> I'll keep it. <laughs> okay. Uh, Dutch Bros market cap now um, is two point five billion. Is that right? Um, well, you know that's not right. That's that's what the horse was on. <laughs> that's that's that yeah um uh 
that's somehow um, somehow the stock uh, I'll get stock ticker I'm I'm looking at has that wrong. It's it's in the um, seven billion dollar yeah. range, and and Travis Burzma, the the founder and chairman, he's at two two and a quarter billion dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's uh, it's one of Oregon's instantly one of Oregon's most valuable companies, and it's really caught the fancy of not just you know, day traders and, and, and things, but, um, investment analysts are really intrigued. And I, I think two things have really caught their eye. Uh, one is, well, three things. One, the company is growing and it's growing same store sales, uh, year over year. So it's expanding and the stores within its existing stores are expanding sales, even as it's opening new ones. Uh, those fundamentals are really strong. Wall street really likes the business model. You know, it's a drive-through kiosks. The real estate costs are less than you know the the Starbucks third place mm-hmm. where you go in and you have something. Uh, the second thing they like is the culture. You know, the brand, the Dutch mafia. People have their stickers mm-hmm. on their skateboards and bikes. You know, they love Dutch Bros. It's got a young audience. It's hip. It's really happening. And the third thing is, you know, hot coffee is just sixteen percent of their sales. Right. They sell mm-hmm. every kind of smoothie. Uh, you know, cold brew, uh, shake, but their real thing is energy drinks. That's their mm-hmm. biggest category. It's it's this blue rebel stuff that makes up somewhere around a quarter of their sales. Uh, and I've never had one, but that's that's their ticket. It's their own brand, um, and people really like it, and they sell a ton of that. Yeah. So we we those of us in Oregon who've known them business for a while, we think Dutch Bros Coffee. Coffee is not part of their name. Bro is part of their name, but mm-hmm. coffee is not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a reason for that. They sell a lot of stuff, and they, you know, on those little those little kiosks, the little drive through kiosks, they they have a lot of options cooked up for their customers. And um, just a great rep. Um, you know, I, I compared them in one of the articles to Les Schwab, mm-hmm. uh, another small town Oregon company. In that case, from Prineville rather than than Grants Pass. But you know, it, just like. When you pull up at Schwab, they rush out. The tire jockeys rush out and say, "What is it you need?" They right. you know, usher you in. You know, when you're if you're in line at Dutch Bros, if things are going right, you know, you're not just sitting in your car. Some friendly young person is coming out and uh, taking your order and bringing some good cheer. And mm-hmm. and oftentimes, you know, the, the reputation is they know your order. They're just coming out to talk. They see you and they already know yeah. what you want because you're coming all the time. And it's so. Kind of like- yeah, go ahead, Mike. Uh, sorry, yeah. uh, well, sorry to interrupt you. Actually, I I think what I wanted to ask you is, is for someone like you who's been c- covering the you know the tech scene community here very heavily, is a little bit of a surprise that uh, you know like a business like Dutch Bros, it become you know one of the most valuable companies here. So I was talking. You you remember Luke Canise, who was the founder yeah. of Puppet and longtime uh-huh. CEO of that company. And and he said something that I thought was interesting. You know, Oregon's been chasing around enterprise software and financial technology, fintech, every kind of thing. He says it makes total sense that when a big company finally emerges, it would be a coffee company. And granted, <laughs> it's not just a coffee company. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, Oregon is now doing something it's good at. It's proven that it's good at. And... Um, and what is interesting, uh, Joth uh, Ritchie or Ricky, I, I, forgive me, I don't know how to pronounce his last mm-hmm. name, the CEO of Dutch Bros, actually was president of Stumptown before mm-hmm. that. 
mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. the opposite extreme. I mean, mm-hmm. Stumptown is fancy coffee um, and Dutch Bros is mass market, mm-hmm. but he understands how to build a brand mm-hmm. and that's working really well. And this is something Oregon knows. So, yeah, it makes some sense that it happened. And what's what I love about it is if you look at the business and just me kind of being familiar with it from its early days when I worked there, it was cash only at the time. Uh-huh. And honestly, they didn't even launch their app until this year. And so if you look at just the growth of business, how much opportunity it is, and I think that's a big part of why Joth came in is to integrate some of these things. I mean, one way you can say, yeah, they're kind of behind on that. But it's really a positive because there's so much green space ahead, you know, blue sky for them, right? That's well put. I mean, if if they were out there saying, oh, we'll never need an app or something like that, well, then you'd be like, "Eh." Mm ah. But if you're saying, hey, these are opportunities that we identify, we're aware of, we're just pursuing them in our own way. um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think investors are okay with that. And it's, you know, there's no two ways about it. It's 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 working uh, for them right now. Now, yeah. you know, they're, they're not hugely profitable. In fact, they're barely profitable right now because they're spending so much money on their growth. Mm-hmm. You know, they're running into competitive markets now. They, they compete, you know, against Starbucks. They'll be competing against um, Dunkin' Donuts. You know, people mm-hmm. on the East Coast, the Northeast, they love their Dunkin' Coffee. Yeah. Uh, and they'll be competing against every single little small town coffee kiosk, every mm-hmm. coffee stand. And those already have following, so it'll be it'll be difficult. But you know, you mentioned another company that's sort of on deck uh, in in beginning to trade publicly. Vacasa, what Vacasa is a Portland company, and what they have done um, is they have essentially consolidated vacation rental management in small vacation destinations all yeah. over the country. They've bought up these. Well, Dutch Bros is in a way doing the same thing. It's it's not buying them up, but it's consolidating it by putting, by making, you know, the, the drive through coffee thing, a fun, exciting, uh, opportunity. It's, it's not dumpy. You know, if you go to many small towns, the little coffee kiosk looks pretty run down and, Mm -hmm. and well, the coffee's hot at least. Um, (laughs) but, but this is something that has energy and a vibe and Mm -hmm. brand power. And those are, are powerful things for a business. And I'll, I'll mention one more thing about Dutch Brothers and we'll move on. I want to talk about Vacasa is to me, um, they, what's special about Dutch Brothers, they spent 25 years building community. And even though they might come into a town they're not from, they invest very heavily. Hey, they get to the high school, like we're, we're, what do you need for your fundraiser? And that makes them, I think, what really is going to help them compete and stand out um, to those. Uh, and again, they're, you know, they've been around a long time. And so, yeah, and some of their, yeah, I hate to say this, but their, their stands were dumpy be, before about seven years ago. So it's really not even about the aesthetic. I think it's, uh, it's just kind of straight from the founder, how they approach the, the community part. So we'll, we'll see, but. Well, you know, you, what, what you're saying there about their investment, that's another Schwab parallel. I mean, there are little mm-hmm. lake fields all over the Northwest that have a little metal left Schwab um, plate plaque in, in yeah. the outfield chain link fence. Yeah, and they have given money to every athletic organization everywhere they are. Every high school, every middle school, um, kept the fields up, and that's you know that's small town brand power, right? Uh, and it's yeah. it's a, a proven formula. It works. Well, let's talk about Vacasa because when you and I talked 
last year in, I want to say, March or April, Vacasa was having a hard time. They just laid off a bunch of people. No one knew it was going to happen. And we maybe talked one time since and seen them kind of come back. But, oh, wow. Did yeah. They, you know. They sure did. And and now we can see their financials because even though they're not public yet, they have filed their financials um, in association with the SPAC deal. They're, they're mm-hmm. you know, merging with an investment fund and going public that way. Um, and we can see that, you know, second quarter 2020 sales cratered, but they're way above, you know, the crater is way in the past now. They're way above where they were. And I think for them, what worked is even when people couldn't fly or didn't want to fly or didn't want to go to a concert or a football game, um, it turned out, you know, a vacation getaway uh, at the beach or in the mountains. That's something people still felt comfortable doing and they still did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Vicasa proceeded very strongly through that. Uh, and their business looks solid. Um, there is competition in their space. You know, other people are looking at this, but they appear to be the largest player in it. And what they're doing is they're, they're running, um, vacation rentals. You know, it's the, the handyman who fixes the, um, broken sink. You know, every vacation rental has got to have that. It's, it's mm-hmm. checking to make sure the place it's cleaning the place, checking to make sure everything works right. It's standardizing the experience so that, you know, you're going to get internet of a certain speed. You're going to get, you know, these utensils, these plates, this kind of thing are going to be there. When you get there, you can count on it being clean. Right. That kind of thing is, is, um, is, you know, you know, you're going to get a certain product and they don't just list, they list on their own site, but they also list on VRBO and, and Airbnb and things like that. I don't know specifically that they list on Airbnb. Maybe they don't, but they list yeah. on many other, um, vacation rental marketplaces, um, so, and it's growing rapidly. So what do you think when they do, I mean, the SPAC's kind of an interesting, you know, take, take on the, the going public and we've seen a lot of it uh, lately, but do you think it's going to have a really strong kind of debut? I, uh, you know, I, I think SPACs are a little unpredictable and they're a little bit out of favor right now. Um, but fundamentally it appears the Vacasa's business is strong. So I think they will be well-received. You know, it's another one. It's not going to be a fad stock. It's not a meme stock. It's a solid business. And I think, you know, whether first day trading is up or down, um, you know, I I think, I think it's a real business and Mm -hmm. has some, some legs in it. Well, let's move on to a couple more and we can uh, go on to another topic, but you know, our neighbors in Southwest Washington is there's a lot of stuff going on there. So for the folks that don't know about, we might've talked about them briefly last time, but Absi since has gone public, yes. who are they? What do they do? What's going on with them? So, um, I'm going to be a little bit out of my element. I have written about them, but I don't want to pretend I'm some kind of expert in, um, in, you know, computer engineering of, of biopharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. but they have, uh, a technology that enables, they believe, more rapid testing and approval uh, for new pharmaceutical products. And mm-hmm. they have partnerships with large drug makers. Um, and there are several drug candidates they're working on right now uh, with individual biotech companies. With any one you know, potential pharmaceutical product, it, 
it can be very hard to tell from the outside whether or not it's going to work, even from the inside. It's got to go through trials and testing. Mm-hmm. Absolute is hoping to eva- to accelerate that process, and they have se- they're working with several different drug candidates. And if that works, um, you know, it could be a a big plus and a very in demand technology. They're not the only ones pursuing this. It's a competitive market, mm-hmm. but um, they appear to be having good options. You know, they were another one with a strong debut. Uh, they debuted around twenty bucks a share, uh, then climbed up to thirty. Uh, it has not been a good fall for them. Uh, they're mm-hmm. down to eleven dollars a share, and in the biotech okay. space, it's often opaque mm-hmm. on why those things are moving mm-hmm. uh, up or down. And I, I'm not going to make venture any guesses, um, but yeah. it, it hasn't been a great fall for them. And they're uh, kind of their stock. Yeah, and what from I know, you know, again, I'm I'm speaking here in the dark as well. They're they're pretty small as far as terms of employee size. Yeah, it's a hundred or so. Yeah. So compared to like a Zoom info or, or, you know, folks like that, they're, they're neighbors. So, which was really cool to see. And so there's, you know, again, we'll, we'll see what happens with them, but um, let's talk about the economy. I mean, I don't know what to think of it. I mean, you know, anecdotally, we, we're seeing this inflation. We're seeing folks say it's transitory. I know in my daily life, things have I'm trying to hire people to do stuff for home or for my contract business. Things have really gone up. I, I t- t- talked to a handyman. Uh, I was trying to get out to my house and he couldn't come for, he was booked out until uh, December. He's trying <laughs> to hire someone starting wage at $45 an hour, cannot find anybody to apply even. And that's just anecdotally. But I mean, I think that's a good maybe place to jump out, start and, you know, get your input on what's going on. Yeah. Well, in Oregon, um, the average wage is up like 11% since the start of the pandemic. So that's what, 19 months at this Mm -hmm. point. Uh, You know, it's, you compare it to past, compare it to the Great Recession, uh, where wages cratered and stayed Mm -hmm. low for a long period of time. I think it took five years uh, wow. For the hospitality sector to recover the wages, the wage decline that it experienced during the Great Recession, it may have been longer. It may have been seven or eight. Wow. Um, but in just the last 12 months, um, you know, the hospitality sector is up more than 10% in wages. There's mm-hmm. just enormous demand right now. And there are a million reasons for that. Um, you know, part of it is all the stimulus payments, you kind of, gave people a financial cushion to not work or at least not work for a while if they choose to. That's a big part of what's happening. Um, COVID still makes people uncomfortable uh, and many types of jobs people don't want to do. And then you have sort of a mismatch in supply and demand. Amazon sending out postcards offering you 18 to 20 bucks an hour to start Mm -hmm. uh, at a warehouse. Well, you know, if you were a restaurant paying people 15 bucks an hour plus tips, well, Amazon maybe looks looks like a good alternative to somebody uh, mm. for that. And so people, retail jobs, people are left those in mass at the beginning of the pandemic, and they have other jobs now, and it's hard to lure them back. Uh, this is driving inflation, and it's making life more complicated. On the other hand, wages really are higher, mm-hmm. and a lot higher. Uh, mm-hmm. So as recessions go, this was a really strange one in that most workers came out not just a little bit ahead, 
but a lot of hit at the end of that. And remember, this is wages. Incomes were up even more than that because people were getting their stimulus payments. And a lot of people who did lose their jobs early on were, you know, got almost all the money covered through the generous federal unemployment benefits. Lower wage workers got more than they were making for for work. Mm -hmm. So just gave everybody a little bit of a cushion. So what does that mean just when we look at our economy here in Oregon? I mean, no crystal ball or anything, but I know you've talked to economists and you follow, obviously follow it. What, what does it mean the next through early 2022 or even through next year when we talk about inflation and wages and, you know, what's well, going to happen? Yeah. Um, John Horvick with GHM research is polling firm locally. And he, he did, he, every Every quarter, maybe more frequently during the pandemic, he's asking people, what do you think of your own personal financial prospects? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, people were like, oh, it looks really bad. And then it gradually improved. Well, now we're at unemployment is below 5%. Incomes are way up. So you'd think people are feeling better about their financial prospects, but they are not. Worries about people's personal financial situations are rising. And I think there's just, mm. we're in a period of flux and people mm-hmm. don't know quite how to evaluate their own personal outlook. Inflation is a real thing right now. Uh, today, as we're recording this, we got new CPI numbers, consumer price index numbers nationally. They were higher than people forecast. People, you know, economists keep thinking, well, this temporary disruption due to mismatch of supply and demand and logistics and supply chain issues and now they're starting to think well that may all be true but if those don't go away um it'll present a right. problem and we may be we may be running into that problem yeah that's what i'm unsure about and we'll, we'll see and i don't know how much psychology is playing into it because folks like you and me who did you know can really remember 2008 i mean i think that affects probably people who are in our kind of uh, generation or, or you know station in life because it, it, things were bad back then. I think a lot of people were kind of very un, you know they're not going to uh, rush out to say everything is uh, great because they remember that it's pretty fresh. Uh, yeah. So I don't know if that plays a part in in some of this too. I, I think it's very possible, and I, I think it's hard for people to to ascertain what this means. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the the recovery last time was so slow, and this one has been so rapid. It's confusing. But certainly psychology, inflation is a huge, psychology is a huge part of inflation. If people expect that prices are going to go up, they will spend their money as quickly as they can, um, you know, to get the price before it goes up. But Mm -hmm. then merchants who know that everyone's dying to buy their products will raise the price and it feeds into itself and it creates a scarcity as well, um, which feeds into inflation. So, yeah, we'll we'll see. I know. I'm just, I think a lot of us are just so worn down by all this, (laughs) you know, it's, it's really tough to, to kind of engage on it. It's just like a, a person working and, you know, buying stuff for the family. So, you know, I appreciate all your coverage on it. Um, you know, something else I want to talk about is just kind of the state of downtown Portland. Um, folks are coming back to the office you're down yeah i know you might be still working remotely but the journalist job is always kind of that anyways yeah i I go in sometimes you know and we have a beautiful office Mm -hmm. i like to be there when i can but um but i can't always be but i think 
so the the news out of downtown really is it's a holding pattern i think people had expected last spring as vaccines were proliferating that maybe people would be back in the office after labor day and you had portland state coming back in at the end of september and they did come back for the most part some classes are still virtual but for the most mm-hmm. part they're back students are living in dorms downtown mm-hmm. seemed like an opportunity for things to to revive um you know the amount of violent uh, violence and vandalism now violence maybe hasn't eased but vandalism has we haven't had very many of the attacks on small businesses and things that we had mm-hmm. for a stretch mm-hmm. um but you know downtown's reputation has been damaged the delta variant has kept people from going back um yesterday umqua bank announced that it's being acquired by uh, columbia bank in tacoma so they're going to the headquarters are moving to tacoma the regional office is the banking office is moving to out of downtown to smaller quarters in lake oswego hmm. um on cruiseway and hmm. you know umqua was the biggest publicly traded company downtown and it's it's a loss to downtown to lose wow. that it means even more office space will be open mm-hmm. so i i think it's an open question what it will take to get downtown back i think the issue right now is the city is facing so many other problems with homelessness and the spike in gun violence that it's been very hard for the city to focus on on downtown yeah i mean we all talk to people who work for companies that are more you know they're knowledge workers office workers and it's that keeps getting pushed out when they're coming back to the office. Ah, September, November, and now uh, I'm talking to a lot of folks. January, yeah, <laughs> and it's like, yeah. well, you know, keep, keep kicking the can down the road. I, I don't, I don't know. And maybe the cat's out of the bag on the whole flexible work thing. I kind of think it is, but well, um, certainly right now, I, I think so, I think employers are split. Some employers say we want you in the office. You know, that's where you're more, most productive. Other employers look at the cost of the lease and say, maybe you should stay home. Uh, But among those that want people back in the office, their leverage is zilch right now because workers will say, oh, well, I'll go take one of the 10,000 other jobs out there that will let me work remotely. Or at least the good workers will say that. And so, I mean, mean, not everybody wants to work remotely, but Mm -hmm. a fair proportion of people Everybody wants more flexibility. How's that? More flexibility. I think that's really what it's turned into is the flexibility part. Yeah. And that's so, a little difficult for a company to manage. What are you going to do? do you, how much space do you lease? Right. You know, when, who's got, how many people are, might be in at a given time? Mm-hmm. Those things are tricky. It's going to be tough. I just know one now. I don't know what to even think about it. I think the flexibility thing, and you've probably known people. I know a few people who just quit their jobs no kind of something lined up because um, frankly uh, their current job wasn't going to be offering some of that flexibility yeah. and this all comes back around you, you know we we know that and the some of the uh, employees have the upper hand in some of the job market right now but it's kind of interesting seeing how that's playing out yeah i mean you could see it reversing my own thought you know hypothesis um based on a looking at a field where there isn't a lot of data is that mm-hmm. eventually there will be proven an advantage, if not for organizations, for individual workers to be in the office. Mm. And that 
you know, will be to your personal advantage to be face to face with your boss more often. Mm-hmm. It will be more to your advantage to be able to easily access whatever resources are in your office or whatever customers are close by. Right. But it may take a long time for that to prove out. And it may also be that I'm wrong. And that, in fact, it really doesn't make any difference whether you're like me right now, sitting in your basement, mm-hmm. or whether uh, you're in an office. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Uh, you know, something I always love to chat with you about is companies to keep an eye on. New tech companies, whether or even if it's companies that put an outpost here in Portland, which I think is kind of you know always happening. So, anything you can share about? Some, some companies you're following or new founders or? Well, one of the, pub, the one publicly traded, newly public company that we didn't talk about um, was ESS. It's this right. Wilsonville battery maker. And they're not a big company either, 165 employees. But their backers include Bill Gates um, hmm. and uh, the Coke, Coke Industries. Hmm. You know, their idea, their battery is um, uh, high capacity uh, for clean energy producers so that solar and wind farms can store some energy and then distribute it, mm. store some energy during the day and distribute it at night or at times when wind isn't blowing for wind farms. Uh, you know, it's early days. The company's revenues this year, they say it'll be around $2 million. Oh, well. Uh, you know, but they threw us back through this merger with this investment fund. They went public this week. And... It was not an easy debut for them. Uh, the original investors in the company, or the original investors in the SPAC, backed out. Almost all of them mm-hmm. redeemed their shares rather than proceed and assume and inherit ownership of ESS shares. But once ESS hit the market, there was a flattering article written about them by CNBC, which described them as a Bill Gates-backed company, and their stock just soared. Um, it went up twenty percent the first day and one hundred thirty percent yesterday. Wow. Uh, now that's great. You know, oh, your stock is a big success, but, uh, as other companies, small companies that have gone public have found that kind of attention can be problematic. You know, investors are going to say, well, I just spent, uh, $20 a share on you. Uh, you went public at eight. I assume you can justify what I spent on you. And if, you know, they made some big promises. They're talking within six or seven years, $3 billion in revenue. Wow. I mean, that's really ambitious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they aren't on track to delivering that, there will be pe- investors will be pounding the table and securities lawyers will be suing them. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. hard for a small business to, to deal with. So, it, it, you know, it, it, we'll see if it's a good thing or not that they had a successful mm-hmm. debut. But certainly, you know, if their technology proves out, you know, that's a big opportunity mm-hmm. uh, here. Uh, Let's take the positive route on them. Let's say I'm going to be positive and right. say, well, what's going to play out? But of course, you know, we'll, we'll see. Um, you know, let's talk a little bit about in Priya, you know, it's this, it's this spin out from Corvallis and they've got, what do they have? Maybe 50 employees. Okay. Well, they just sold for a half billion dollars. Uh, to JSR Corp, which is a a semiconductor, Japanese semiconductor materials company. So you got this little company spin out from Oregon State sells for a half billion dollars. It just shows the the value of having a technology that people want. Mm -hmm. Uh, They they make uh, technology that enables something called um, extreme ultraviolet lithography, 
or EUV. The chip industry needs this to make the most advanced chips. And Impria um, accelerates that. And so uh, they they have materials for the process that that apparently work really well. Their investors included, before this deal, all the big chip makers, TSMC Mm -hmm. and Intel. Uh, And now, you know, they've been sold for uh, a literal fortune. Wow. And so they're going to stay in Corvallis. You know, we're not going to have another big exit like that. But, you know, it's a very niche technology. But if you're in the right market, that's a big opportunity. And they're in a market that really needs it. Well, you mentioned a company that you're very, very familiar with. You've been covering your whole career at Oregonian. And I think it's, you know, I always, we should end here. This is, will be good because what's going on with the chip shortages we read about, and it's going to keep going. There's a big part of, you know, national security too, with this issue. What's going on with Intel? Well, Intel, I'm, this is my story for, for this coming Sunday, Dan. Um, okay. Uh, they're. You know, they hired their new CEO in January. He started work in February, uh, Pat Gelsinger. He was an Intel veteran, uh, top executive, left, ran VMware, and now is back. Former CEO was talking about cutting costs, boosting profits, divesting their factories potentially. Well, he didn't say that, but um, sending leading edge production to, mm-hmm. to contract manufacturers. Uh, which would have permanently diminished Intel, but might have been more profitable. Um, but Intel was really struggling technologically. They kept missing the new technology nodes. Um, so they hired this new CEO, Gelsinger, and he took the opposite tact. He's going to take the most aggressive approach possible. He's going to reinvest in the company's technology and in its manufacturing capacity, exactly the opposite of what his predecessor was talking about. So they're building two new factories in Arizona. There'll be another one in Europe. And then another one will be announced somewhere in the United States later this year. Uh, but these things cost a ton, $20 billion for the two factories. They call them wow. fabs in the chip industry in Arizona. So we're looking at $10 billion apiece. So, you know, it's investors are looking at that. And the stock really hasn't done anything uh, during the time Gelsinger has been CEO. And investors are really questioning his strategy right now um you know in january in january in july he showed off some new technology um uh so to improve chip performance and i know internally people were really excited about this technology the market just shrugged you know they did this hour-long thing and they all Mm -hmm. showed it off and oh it's this great stuff the market was shrugged and the gelsinger he was really mad. He did an all-hands call the next day, and he told he told employees, you know, I'm pissed. I'm pissed off. The market is looking for bad news, even when there isn't any. Um, and I think the question now is, in the medium term, is how much runway does he have? You know, uh, how much patience will Wall Street have with his strategy? It, it takes years to build a new factory. And it's very expensive, as we said, 10 billion bucks a piece um, before they start pushing for something more profitable. Mm-hmm. Now, Gelsinger would come back and, and Intel generally and say, you know, you can't succeed in this industry by being cheap. You know, big investments bring big returns and that we're going to he has a three year plan to get the Intel back on the technology lead, on technology's leading edge. And about that time, they'll have these new factories coming online. 
ideally, you know, they'll be hitting the ground running. Intel also wants to start making chips for other companies instead of just making its own chips. Hmm. We'll see how that market proves out. Three years should be enough time to know if that's going to work. But the question is, will he get three years? Right. What's the importance of that playing out for? You know, I don't want to get like too down the road of this, but it is a question I talk to people about or people that know about it, like national security, because you, you see some of these chip shortages in other industries. And I know this is not necessarily directly related to Intel, what they produce, but you know, it is very important that they succeed in a, in a lot of ways. So, so uh, most, many of the world's leading edge chip factories right now are in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. um, you may have noticed that there's some geopolitical tension right now between yeah. China and Taiwan. Um, if things got really bad, I think one could assume those factories would be inaccessible to American companies and we wouldn't be able to make chips there. Could, Samsung's in South Korea, that would still be available. But there's a real push, push by the Trump administration and now by the Biden administration to onshore chip manufacturing. So there are $50 billion hanging out there um, for the chip industry to build more factories here. You know, that doesn't go a long way in this industry, mm -hmm. but it's something. Um, and you know, the companies are happy to take the government's money. Mm -hmm. uh, Intel is certainly anticipating that it's going to offset some of its costs. It's working closely with the Defense Department to do more contract manufacturing for the government. TSMC, um, the big contract manufacturer in Taiwan, is building a new factory in Arizona. Samsung's building a new factory in the United States. So there definitely is a push back here, and national security is a, a big part of the reason why. Mm -hmm. Well, Mike, as always, uh, it's great to talk to you. Great to get an update of what's going on. I mean, the things we talk probably every six to eight months. And it's like, it's always fresh because there's always so much changing. So we'll talk again, maybe Q2 of next year and see, see what, yeah, what's going on. Imagine here. how much will have changed by then. <laughs> I know. I don't need one. I just kind of want to hide for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, well, well, thanks again, Mike. And where can folks follow you? Obviously read you on Oregon Live. Oregonian. Right, right. OregonLive.com, the Oregonian print edition, OregonLive.com slash Silicon Forest, uh, Twitter at Rogaway, R-O-G-O-W-A-Y. All right. Thanks so much, Mike. Good to see you. The PDX Executive Podcast is a production of ThatCast, a Portland, Oregon podcast agency that partners with brands to create custom podcasts. You can learn more at thatcast.com. And please take a moment to subscribe and rate the podcast as well.